not so long ago, in the mysterious land of Toronto, Canada, Scott Pilgrim was dating a high schooler. Hey everybody, Mark D, IT guy, dad, and extremely mediocre podcaster, and generally bad movie nerd here, and I have here, on a very nice Blu-ray, a movie from a wonderful filmmaker, filmmaker, inspired by a great graphic novel series, and that is Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, directed by Edgar Wright. I've talked about Edgar Wright, right? Yeah, no. Yeah, probably, yeah. Scott Pilgrim, again, a successful graphic novel series by Canadian writer and illustrator Brian Lee O'Malley that was produced between 2004 and 2010 in black and white and then re-released in color from 2012 to 2015. It is really um, indie rock scene-inspired content framed in manga-style art and doused liberally with music and video game references if it was like a dessert you know or something and video game references are are probably the the bailey's irish cream on this dessert and that's it's a weird metaphor but but i'm keeping it it sounds delicious in seeking out a movie deal o'malley kicked off uh all of the the, the machinations or machinations of hollywood you know welcome to the machine and Edgar Wright was was reached. He and O'Malley subsequently and figuratively hit it off. The production of the screenplay and, in a way, the production of the books was somewhat collaborative, as O'Malley, Wright, and Michael Bacall were in contact throughout the development of these different projects, or not different, but various projects. O'Malley received a writing credit for the original publication being licensed, but um, a significant amount of the great lines in the movie came straight from the books, as is the way of licensing. And even some sight gags were not uh, right or Bacall created, but instead existed even in the, the early books that were pre-movie deal. I've seen plenty of adaptations where the writers get a story credit perhaps or, or based on the story by credit but O'Malley has um, I believe a credit on par with or slightly less than on par with Wright and Bacall in this case so that's an interesting thing the way they do credits are very specific and the script notes podcast links in the show notes we'll have a little more about that or we'll be able to to speak more on that as they are highly successful uh, screenwriters of whose work you have seen. Anyway, there is a, a humor that Wright gravitates towards in his work that was in, in some ways already present in this property. So it only really made sense for him to be the one to captain the film adaptation of it. By the numbers. All right. So, running the numbers, the movie was released August 15th, 2010, and there have been some anniversary tweets popping off from O'Malley and Wright, notably on asking Ubisoft to re-release Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, the game, 
which was pulled from PlayStation Network and Xbox Live, likely due to some form of licensing. And I wasn't planning on it, but this seems to be the ideal place to, to talk about this for a minute. So my wife and I, in, in the moment when we were, were dating, we would play this on PS3 somewhat often. We were both fans of the movie, and, and we saw it with no previous knowledge of what it was about whatsoever. Like, we weren't hip enough to even have had knowledge of the novels, and in that respect, I can equate us to 17-year-old Knives Chow telling her friend Tamara that, you know, she didn't even know that there was good music until, like, two months ago in the film. But we were shocked. We were odd that Blu-ray was acquired the second it was available. Same deal with the PSN game. I think I probably liked the game more than everyone I played with because I was simply a, a huge fan of SNES-era beat-em-ups. And the game contained some wonderful sprites and, and a, a really banging soundtrack by Anamanaguchi. And to say that Anamanaguchi is rad is a bit of an understatement. For the video of Endless Fantasy, they, they sent a slice of pizza to, to space. Links in the show notes. But a, a pizza went into space. Film that, Damien Chazelle. <laughs> I still have the poster for Endless Fantasy hanging in my house to this day. Like, it's just a rad album. They're, they're a rad band. So the game was great, and I loved it, but it was... Best enjoyed with friends, and I didn't end up playing it too much until after it was pulled. Then the PlayStation 3 that it was installed on died, and that was that. But it was kind of meant to be a couch co-op experience, and that was very much a throwback to the SNES era, and this is perhaps the best way for me to sum up the sensibilities of this idea, this property, this, this thing that is Scott Pilgrim's universe but anyway back back to the back to the thing 10th anniversary coming up hopefully cool things coming out i'll buy them in a heartbeat but the the blu-ray is already very well featured with something like five or six commentary tracks a making a featurette an alternate ending and some deleted scenes i'm sure i'm missing something i had i had started working on this podcast I got about a month ago at this point, maybe more. And since then, they've done a cast reunion table read. Links in the show notes. Which was extremely fun and very engaging and just all around great and made my day instantly better. And it, it was a Monday. And it benefits Water for People, which is a charity that, that gives water to people, I would assume. But they did that and are in concert with Dolby Theatres in active plans to have a theatrical re-release. This was scheduled but had to be pushed because there's that horribly contagious virus going around that can just one-shot you at random. You know, normal things. But yeah, if they, uh, if they have... Shut up, phone. If they have any physical paraphernalia, I'll probably be in for some. 
I haven't been doing a, a great job of keeping up on things. It's just it's been busy on the on the home front. Jesus fucking Christ. I, I don't use Twitter correctly, I think. I think I don't I, I don't use it as a way to keep track of things. I I use it to provide momentary and spontaneous entertainment. So I tend to follow just way too many people because I want some fresh posts to kind of roll the emotional dice on. That's not too much of a stretch for that metaphor, and if you're curious Links in the show notes. It's also on American Netflix, if you haven't seen it. So, Scott Pilgrim is. So, if you haven't, go ahead and just stop now. Just stop right now. I strongly recommend it. In the event that it wasn't clear, I always recommend it. This isn't a great entryway into a movie, but it's especially not a great entryway into this movie. And I don't think I serve that function very well. That's just not what I do. We've The numbers, right? Running time of 112 minutes. Budget is an estimated 60 million, although I heard 50 million somewhere in there as well. And that's good. That's great for this movie. The movie has a stellar, stellar cast with the likes of Michael Sarah, Kieran Culkin, Anna Kendrick, Alison Pill, Aubrey Plaza, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Mark Weber, Ellen Wong, Jason Schwartzman, Johnny Simmons, Nelson Franklin, Brie Larson, Brandon Routh, Chris Evans, Mae Whitman, Clifton Collins Jr., Thomas Jane, and Bill Hader. How do you make that movie for 50 to 60 million? That is impossible. Opening weekend was a cool 10 mil, right? So, meh. But it only managed to do 31 and a half in the US and, and you know, 47. 48, let's call it 48. Abroad. And, uh, or, or in total. And that's not good. That's really not good. That, that's really bad. Why, though? Well, I think that the marketing of this movie didn't do it justice, but it's also maybe for a very specific demographic in, in, in some ways. I went to see it with two of my younger cousin-in-laws, I guess, um, and they dug it, but I don't think that the marketing touched them at all. They didn't know what it was either. And um, had they not gone with us, they probably would have never seen it. It did open against the Expendables and Eat, Pray, Love, so that took all the other quadrants. And and it beat out Eat, Pray, Love, but those were, were pretty big movies with staying power, right? Especially, you know, for the older folks, of which I am one now. I'm, I'm those quadrants now. I was the other quadrants before. And that's just me assuming. I'm not, this isn't research, but... It's done gangbusters on video and streaming. It really has become a cult classic in that there's a, a huge fan base for this movie, myself included, and the associated novels that exist, or, you know, novel property. Chris Evans himself uh, compared the fandom of Scott Pilgrim to the fandom of the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe when talking to Entertainment Weekly. Links in the show notes. In Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, an or oral history. Hello. <laughs> I laughed when I was saying that. I was, I'm, I'm an idiot. Yeah, he's an idiot. The joke, though, is that no one went to see this movie, and I'm pretty sure that like, that's fairly accurate. In said same article, Wright shares a fun anecdote about Seth MacFarlane. You should... Def it's worth a read. Okay, so this is going to be a new thing, maybe. 
or maybe I just wanted to use another stinger. But this is going to be a big fat love letter to this movie going forward. But I would like to say that it's not perfect. There are degrees of a thing not being perfect, and I think that I will address them here. I'm sure you've heard of Emmy-nominated Honest Trailers before. If you haven't, you should go check them out on YouTube because they are they are just incredibly funny. But they do make fun of things in that comedy roast type of way where it, it will sting. It'll hurt you, but it won't kill you. They're not they're not out there just to disassemble a whole movie necessarily. Scott Pilgrim was the subject of an honest trailer released February 9th, 2016. See how including the exact date there makes me seem smart? It's, it's just, it's the little things. Links in the show notes. And has some really choice jabs at the movie, like indulge in two hours of pure nerd wish fulfillment and meet the collection of late 2000s hipster cliches known as Scott Pilgrim. And I'm not trying to do epic voice guy. He's, he's pretty epic, but you know. Again, if you haven't seen the movie, it's on American Netflix. So basically it should be on most, if not all, Net, Netfly, Netflix says. And uh, you should go watch it now. And I hope that this hasn't turned you off watching it. You should, you should super watch it. But Honest Trailers is hilarious. Links in the show notes. And, it, and that video has the nugget of truth. So in that episode, they also call the movie, quote, the definition of style over substance at close quote, which is probably more hurtful than intended. And certainly, in my opinion, hyperbolic in the style of the New York Post. But there were some other writers involved there that are no longer involved. And I feel like maybe that played a part in how mean that came out to be. But in service of the segment, this is now called The Book is Better Than the Movie. I mean, it's not. It's the comic book is better than the movie. No, no, I'm not doing this all the time, but it is wild, wildly appropriate as it is dialogue from the movie and is even used by Honest Trailers to put that even spin on the video. But it's a good line. But the book is better than the movie is, is a line of dialogue in the movie, and I think that it makes it into the book as well at some point, if memory serves. Uh, I'm a little fuzzy on it. I read this maybe a month or almost two months ago. There is definitely a self-awareness about the property, and I'll talk about it specifically to the film when I finally get around to talking about it. But here I'm, I'm actually going to run through some of the differences in the books because, well... Having 1,200 pages of comic panels equates to a lot more than one feature film. Yes, there are six books that are approximately 200 pages each. And I really didn't count, but there's there's a lot of book per book, right? 160, 180, 200, something like that. And each of these covers, you know, approximately, we can make that assumption, two months of Scott time making the whole series about a year. The whole movie feels like it's compressed into a week or two, which it, it doesn't really vibe with the story it's trying to tell. And I think that if you look at it that way, it really brings the stuff from 
the Honest Trailers video home. It makes it make more sense. And just as some background, I, I read the books in black and white after I had been obsessing over the movie and then proceeded to pre-order the color editions as they were released. I have had the color hardcovers since 2015, so five years, and I never read them until now to go over the movie, right? To do this podcast. I had had them mint and just cracked them open for the first time. I really liked it in color, though. Maybe it comes from seeing the movie first and growing up with American comics versus manga. That often, you know, if not traditionally, is in black and white. That may play a part in my, my preference. Again, there will be some spoilers here, although I won't be going into great detail because there's just, there's a lot. Volume 1, Scott Pilgrim's Precious Little Life. This book, heavy, made it into the movie. A lot of dialogue. The eye contact, sight gag, etc. The meat and potatoes mostly comes directly out of the book, but it has a lot of extra story that will remain mostly unacknowledged by the by the film. Wright and Bacall made their screenplay as lean as possible. Kill your darlings. Volume 2, Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Having a tight screenplay, you forego things like spending time examining Ramona and Scott's relationship in detail or, you know, the fun bit about making vegan shepherd's pie. We learn a lot more about Scott's family than we did in the movie, and the book really hammers home how much of a jerk and how self-centered Scott really is. The entire Lisa character didn't make it into the movie except as a reference by Julie, and she's not insignificant to the plot in the book. However, a lot of good dialogue did make the cut. O'Malley states that the theme of this book, largely told in flashback, is, quote, examining our high school relationships and how they relate to our later lives, end quote. But for wanting to write a shonen, right? Also quotes on that it was a boy comic. It's a manga thing. Look it up. Link in the description. Link in the show notes. There is, there's precious little fighting or action sequences in this particular book, and the physical confrontations that did happen were definitely spiced up by Wright and Bacall. Volume 3, Scott Pilgrim and the Infinite Sadness. There is a lot of flashback that is obviously removed, but this book draws out the Todd fight and uses the liminal space to give Kim and Envy three-dimensionality depth. I believe that O'Malley calls Kim, quote, the heart of the story, quote, at some point in the later books, or that she becomes it. I, I, I can't find the quote. I don't quite remember it. The screenplay cuts a majority of the non-Scott-focused moments to give the movie a really, you know, a pop and fight and, and really good, funny, punchy gags. What Wright and Bacall do is, and what they excel at in this particular example, is knowing when they found like a really good thing and then making it work. 
in a more appropriate occasion in the service of their screenplay. Volume 4, Scott Pilgrim Gets It Together. Ultimately, I would say that this book is about identifying these negative patterns of behavior that are maybe self-defeating and then acknowledging it and and getting out of it, or, or, or trying to at any rate. This was examined in detail with a variety of characters that obviously didn't make it to the movie. But I feel that the idea, subtle as it might be, still made it in. Or maybe it's not subtle, maybe I'm just the asshole, right? Volume 5, Scott Pilgrim vs. The Universe. This would be a great title for a sequel, but there's legitimately no way in hell that that would happen. I'd, I would take a new video game, though, a thousand percent. Anyway, this one takes an opportunity to put the eponymous main character square into the background to pull focus on Kim and Ramona for a while. I had originally... Okay, so, background. This is the second time I record that part. I originally tried to use theater metaphors like center stage, but I don't really know theater metaphors. This one, this one's definitely about running away, but also about asking for help and how that can play out differently within particular relationships. It clearly did not make it into the movie like at all, like almost fucking nothing made it to the movie. Volume six, Scott Pilgrim's Finest Hour. The movie kept Negascott in reserve as a really nice joke to tie the bow on a huge action sequence in the Chaos Theater, which, interestingly enough to me, for a hot second, was called The Layer of Cool Shit by O'Malley while working on the book. The ending is, is, is massive in the book. Massive. But condensed into a, a big action set piece, a huge one, took three weeks to film and and trimmed to make Gideon less of like a, a straight up psychopath apex of all of Scott's negative qualities. And he is just simply leaning towards more towards just, just being a bad guy, just being an asshole. There would have been so much explaining to do in, in Schwartzman's wonderful performance of, you know, the guy you love to hate would have been probably a lot closer to an episode of Mindhunter had the movie followed the book. So there are the main differences, and the book is definitely more, right, than the movie. But the movie's great in its own right and needed to make adjustments because the story, while amazing in the motion picture medium, was too large to fit the canvas of a modestly budgeted but effects-driven movie slated to be less than two hours long. Time is compressed. Lines, sequences, characters, bits, storylines, gags, they all get cut. That's showbiz. And here ends the book is better than the movie. Edgar Wright in Material Synergy. Okay. So now that we're back from that, and I know I was like, wow, I'm gonna talk bad about the movie I like, and I really just I really just excused it from any wrongdoing. But now that we're back, I'm going to try to describe this intellectual property 
a unifying theory, perhaps, and a lot of it centers around Edgar Wright. Wright. Or my perceptions of Edgar Wright, as it would be. The source material is definitely dense, and it allows for a lot of sight gags, sound gags, and Easter eggs. I mean, they're not hidden, per se, so maybe not Easter eggs, but more like, I guess, detail-oriented jokes. Yeah, yeah, detail-oriented, I'll call them that. It makes us sound like intelligent appreciators of the art of modern cinema, as opposed to just abject and standard nerds. Wright pointed out in one of the commentary tracks that he thought of the movie as if someone was reading the comic very quickly, but that they would then be able to go back and scrutinize every panel and find enjoyment in discovering the details that they missed. And I'm not certain if that's the, the quote directly that I'm paraphrasing from memory or, or if that's just my own experience, really. Hey, <laughs> but um, here we are, full Ouroboros, Mark eating his own ass. <laughs> the fact that this came from a comic, basically, means it's a starting storyboard, which it isn't uncommon at all in the slightest, but the way this particular book was illustrated lent itself to an energetic and kinetic form of transition that Wright had already discovered in space, developed further in Shaun of the Dead, and really perfected in Hot Fuzz. Adding on to that, the magical realism element meant he could really play in the audio-visual realm as it allowed for a lot of interesting shots and even more clever transitions. Fantasy elements in an otherwise realistic setting? I don't well, I don't know what what, I, what would you call that, but also in the narrative's world too, but not necessarily in the world being narrated. I can't I can't find on I, I tried to Google it. I can't find a Greek word for reality, but I found truth and I don't think that's quite appropriate. Just because it isn't manifest in, in meat space doesn't mean that it isn't true. The book is centered about O'Malley's life in a, a heavily kind of dramatized autobiographical way, but I mean, he, he basically was Scott Pilgrim and in a band and doing all of these quote scene things. And to be fair, he states that he's in all the characters and that's a, a whole vibe that I can get behind having written a sitcom pilot of my own group of friends. As much of a caricature of my friends as the characters were, they were, they were really all aspects of me that were more easily represented in someone else. So there's a really, really cool book by David Byrne of the Talking Heads called How Music Works, and it's a gorgeous book, and it is interesting, it is wonderful, I have it in my hand right now, and it feels great, it is just an extremely well-made book physically, but I enjoy the writing of the book. I think that David Byrne's 
ideas and insights are interesting. And in that, he, uh, he has a chapter called How to Make a Scene. And he talks about the... He kind of breaks it down, but there is the way to create, to jumpstart this organism, this yeast starter, if you were brewing beer or baking sourdough bread, right? And there are some requirements you need. Uh, requirement number one is, quote, there must be a venue that is of appropriate size and location in which to present new material. And uh, I'll skip a little bit because it's really specific, but there's uh, another one. Number four is there must be a sense of alienation from the prevailing music scene. As I said, this is about music. But that factors into Scott Pilgrim, I guess, a lot because music does, right? And, and music factors into Brian Lee O'Malley's life and ideas and thoughts and feelings so, so much. So thinking about that, Brian Lee O'Malley was definitely in the comics scene or the alt comics scene. Maybe he's not doing superhero stuff, but he is, is maybe a little bit. Um, it's not manga, but it is maybe a little bit. It's not a romance comic, but maybe it is a little bit. And if you, um, if you go back and watch Chasing Amy, uh, again, I believe Chasing Amy is a comic book one with, uh, Banky and uh, whatever the fuck Affleck's name was, Holden or some shit. You know, you you get that inkling of it, that Kevin Smith Ness again, which uh, also played a role in O'Malley's stuff. I believe that he talks about really enjoying Kevin Smith's work at some point, either on the Blu-ray or or in the books. The books have extra kind of extra features on the books. It's so awesome, like buy the books by the movie. It's really great. But he was in the comic scene and he was also in the indie rock scene in Toronto. And and there's this appeal to that type of aesthetic. Like I'm I'm loath to call them hipsters, but in in 2010 when the movie was released, that was was probably the de facto label for this subculture. And as much as I'm I'm trying to cover for it. O'Malley and and the team of Wright and Bacall, you know, definitely takes a, a few shots at it, especially in the context of the chaos theater. But that doesn't prevent it from from being a unifying idea behind the whole world that envelops Scott Pilgrim's you know precious, precious little life, the character's actual life, not just the first book in the series, which seems to have been somewhat sarcastically named. Edgar Wright falls into this camp as well, a bit. He's known for making and sharing really great playlists with a lot of obscure music on Spotify. And I can see how that synergy helped bring this adaptation to life. Anyone cynical or sneering would have eschewed the authenticity of the original works for some manufactured or subsidized perception of cool that a studio would have had you know plenty of notes on while simultaneously contracting out a consultancy to their friend who works at universal music group the fact that Wright has an affinity for music and the eye and and the feel and the heart of the artists 
right? Is that 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 is the fact. His skills and his sensibilities really helped the books come to life. And I'm not confident that any other human could have have done it better. I also think that both the books and the movies take their shots at the scene idea and then this this idea of the delineations of being in the scene out of the scene uh, true or authentic to the scene or not and they they both identify that that's a phenomenon but then they also really use Gideon to illustrate all the ways that that could be bad so you know there's there's a lot to it. It it contains multitudes. On music. All of that being said, the music does play a huge, massive role in the property and subsequently in the movie. It's difficult to separate the two, but the music serves as the backdrop and some of the forefront of the story. Scott Pilgrim is obviously in a band, and bands are already a source of interpersonal drama of a mostly unnecessary level. In American graffiti-like fashion, the backdrop of the music exists in and is affected by the world, but in the theme of the book and the movie, it is also fourth wall breaking and will follow characters through montage or across scenes. The music in the film is mostly inspired by the music that inspired the book itself. Oh, and, and going back to that music thing following characters, it's general generally true for the sound design as well. And the J cuts or something. Some, uh, okay, anyway. Scott Pilgrim was named after a plum tree song. The character of Envy Adams was considered in the same league as Emily Haynes of Metric. Stephen Stills is obviously named after Stephen Stills, and Young Neil is also obviously named after Neil Young. There's a lot of that in there, and it, it speaks to how music can be the the aether, right? The spelled A-E-T-H-E-R, or ether, of someone's life. The thing that fills all the spaces and and touches every aspect. Wright was was all in on that and even included some really good picks of his own on the soundtrack. Sleazy Bed Track is, by the Blue Tones, is just, it's a great, great guitar song. Music comes in and out, and it's all this, this, you know, it's, it's kind of a fourth wall break that isn't really a fourth wall break, uh, you know, where the characters aren't waking at the proverbial or literal camera, but the author or the auteur, the director is kind of thing. Things like, like the video game UI elements are, are similar. No one sees them, but we do. The books go a little harder on that, and uh, the characters do at point wink at the reader. Literally, I believe, if memory serves, or, or I made that up in a dream. But maybe the best way to sum this up, and, and I probably should have said this before, is that it, it's a story about relationships in your 20s, but it's it's infused with indie scene trappings and is consistently winking at the audience, but but maybe it isn't because in the first fight, Stacy's all like, "What the hell?" Uh, so that goes out the window. I think that at this point, 
that I'm just a hard stuck one trick trying to break apart this, you know, Fabergé egg. Beck? Yeah, yeah, that Beck. No, not the beer. Beck. Beck wrote all of the Sex Bob-omb songs, the Sex Bob-omb's music for the movie, and I'm not gonna lie, I super like it. I fucking like those songs. I dig that shit. Nigel Godrich, who is um, a super producer, so to speak, who has worked with Radiohead, Beck, Pavement, Paul McCartney, Zero Seven, and just a whole slew of other acts in the capacity of producer, mixer, and artists. He did the score. Other original pieces like Boss Battle, which fucking slaps. And uh, I believe he reworked the Jerry Goldsmith Universal Fanfare for the movie. Dan the Automator did the music for the Ninja Ninja Revolution game and the song that Matthew Patel sings. I also like to think in my head canon that doing the music on this movie introduced him to Mary Elizabeth Winstead, and that's how they started Got A Girl. Regardless, the soundtrack is, is great, and there will be a link in the show notes, but I have in my hubris of being a solo writer, presenter, producer, graphic artist, webmaster of this extremely mediocre podcast, I have created a, splay, a, a playlist on Spotify. I have created a playlist on Spotify. I meant scum of the earth. There are some songs from the film, some that might have been mentioned or referenced in the book, and some that I just pull out of my ass. I tried not to repeat myself, and I'm actually not a whole lot of an indie kid, so I'm sure I'm missing out on a lot. So feel free to tweet at CoolMarkD, Cool with a C and Mark with a K. Did I say CoolMarkC? I meant CoolMarkD. I'm, I'm, fuck it, I've, I've lost it. Anyway, feel free to tweet at me for suggestions. I'm all about it, and I was, I was pretty hesitant to create a playlist, but every time I hear Frank Black's I Heard Ramona Sing, I always, 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 I always think about the party scene and the montage of Scott looking through the party for Ramona, and it is, that is for sure on the playlist. This thought intrusive as it was, really sends home the message to me of how important music was to the creators, to that scene, and to the movie as a whole. I'm not I'm not somebody that should be making a playlist, but I, I like making playlists as shitty as and, and insane as they may be. My playlists, my mix CDs have been called wild and unpredictable, and I think that maybe I just have problems. But in the grand scheme of things, those are, are pretty trivial, and I'm sure other people have. And anyway, that's not my my go-to move. I'm not like, oh, here's a movie. I'm going to make a fucking playlist. But this movie extracted that from me. It, it instilled into me the desire to do this and to share it with you, singular listener. So go ahead and check it out. It's definitely in the show notes. I will, I will not forget to put that in there it's really important to me i spent a lot of time on it it has like 160 songs it's dumb and it's kind of all over the place and i don't know how to explain it anyway bill pope the party scene the party scene early in the movie is it's a standout scene to me the location the set dressing the cinematography the visual effects 
the performances, the whole thing. The lighting is is one thing that I can talk about now, and and to do that, I'll I'll, I'll talk a little bit about Bill Pope. Bill Pope, ASC, has worked on Darkman, Army of Darkness, Fire and Sky, Blank Check, Mr. McIntosh, Clueless, Bound, The Matrix, Bedazzled, The Matrix Reloaded, The Matrix Revolutions, Spider-Man 2, Spider-Man 3, The Spirit, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, obviously, Men in Black 3, The World's End, Baby Driver, Alita Battle Angel, and is announced for Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. And that's just a selection. That's not even the whole thing. Dude's a hard worker. And it's a lot. He's done He's done a lot. He even does a commentary track with Edgar Wright. And at no point is he acting like he's hot shit. Motherfucker was the DP on The Matrix. That That's a lot. There's a ton of stuff on his IMDb. Links in the show notes. Smash that subscribe rate five stars. And I don't know what it is about the party scene, but it really appeals to me. In looking at it again briefly today, I took some screen grabs and I have hopefully marked up an image to post in the show notes. And yes, yes, constant singular listener. I, I post images in my show notes. It's not an advertisement, but I use Pocket Casts, and it supports all that good shit. So my notes may have images and links and the like. So if you don't get formatting in your podcast app, just go ahead and go to the episode page on scumbags.com. That is S-C-U-M-M-B-A-G-S, right? Scumbags, plural, two M's, to see more. I'm pointing this out because I'm actually going so far as to then now create some kind of original content here. There are there are no ads on my site. I would honestly prefer it if no one ever had to go there because the site is very basic and I'm just constantly second guessing every decision I ever made with it. But anyway, I think this came up because recently, again in the span of me working on this podcast, Bill Pope was on the Team Deacons podcast with Roger and James Deacons. And that's a huge deal. That is a massive deal. And they're not homies. They'd actually not worked together really. But Roger Deacons introduced Bill Pope as the master. And I would need to posit that there were several masters on that podcast. But I'll leave that for peer review. Links in the show notes. But the... The party scene has these um, dark ceilings, if you can dig that. I, it, it, it was a frat house and, and not a movie set, so there are there is a ceiling, but they're just they're kind of dark and they aren't they aren't reflecting back a lot of light down. So I would assume that there was a ton of negative fill up there for this purpose. The base light level is just lower than normal. I feel. And it makes the lighting on the actors pop all that much more. This is post-Ramona appearing, so we have colors in the movie now. And the the movie is, intent to, to clarify, the movie is intentionally bland 
up until we first see Ramona Flowers and we see her here. And the in, back to the party scene, the collage of actors and wardrobe is just great. The walls have this olive drab textured paper on them. There's there's dark wood banisters. It's delightful. There are these string lights kind of all over the place that add and just they just add that pop and interest, especially when they're out of focus that in the in the background and are used for framing. There's a lot of balance and, and symmetry in these shots, which I always love, and, and there are a lot of very, very, very clever shots that are done and compositive, but are so subtle almost as to remain mostly unnoticed or even invisible. You know, there's some effects, like one of my favorites is when Scott sidles up to Ramona and starts talking to her about Pac-Man. He kind of slide erases the, uh, he wipes, right? It's called the wipe. He wipes the, the text and it's on one of those green walls and there are lights camera right illuminating the scene with noticeable spill on the back wall and they're balanced out, right? Uh, steelyard style by the edge of a door frame with string lights, camera left and this most perfect, idiotic, wild light switch that must have been like nine feet in the air. Pope and Wright agree that the light switch was part of the location and that that's why they chose to shoot right there. In the middle of the shot and, and all the way at the top are some black balloons to pin down the center of the frame and Scott and Ramona stand on either side of that center line. Another setup that happens here a lot on the main actors of shot is Rembrandt lighting. The Dutch painter would light his portraits where the face would be illuminated from one side and the darker side would usually be facing the, um, um, I, well, the, the camera in this case, I guess, but there would be a small triangle of light on the cheek of the dark side of the face as the light kissed it just so. Another lighting thing that that's done in this party sequence, um, you know, is party scene. Is it even a scene? There's like three montages in here. I, I I don't know. Sure, scene, party scene. Is how they just they they kill all the lights except for the lights on Aubrey Plaza playing Julie when she lays down her doom on Scott Pilgrim. It is it is followed up with an audio cue like someone hitting a big Frankenstein switch. And it's not Frankenstein's monster's power switch because Frankenstein's monster didn't build the lab or pitch in for utilities, right? So, Frankenstein switch. But that huge switch sound to accompany the lights just dying. It almost feels like a digital effect, but it was fully practical lighting and just executed so well, just perfectly. The whole party area was just super complex in many ways that are non-obvious because it was just planned out to be effective, to take from the source material, which is a comic book, and to have this almost subliminal impact. When Scott is walking through the crowd, the blocking of the actors is meant to kind of reveal his path. As his head swivels, that was 
legitimately basically panels from the comic as storyboard, which was nice to see. Again, the Frank Black song is playing. They had to drag Michael Sarah around on a dolly for that montage. There were composites that were also camera moves, and those had to be planned out in excruciating detail. Bill Pope on the commentary track with Wright says, It looks easy, but don't try this at home. It's probably one of the more cinematographically dense parts of the movie, just thinking back you know, from memory. And it wasn't a fight scene. I, I mean, like fight scenes are definitely their own thing. But Wright even said that the, the movie was storyboarded within an inch of its life in a tweet, and thinking about the obsessive meticulousness of Wright's vision, I, I fully believe it. Another fantastic practical effect, and, and now this is a bit outside of the cinematographer's area, and more into sets and visual effects, is when Scott exits his visit to the bathroom with a great P-meter gag. Spectacular. He finds himself to be in a completely different place, a school hallway. They just rolled that whole big hallway set over to the door of the bathroom set and rolled away the living room set, but it, it so works. They did show how they did this in the video blogs, I think, and it's really impressive. Practicals work so much better. And that's also when they hit us with the rework of the fairy fountain music from The Legend of Zelda, you know, either Enter Goddess or or The Goddess Arrives. I don't I don't know what the actual name might be. But it's the fairy fountain music and it is extremely good. I also want to point out that just after Scott loses the fight to Nega Ninja in Ninja Ninja Revolution and it cuts the band practice and it sounded to me like he was playing the game over music from Super Mario World. Maybe. This is from memory, again, but I think that's a thing. I might throw it in here just for, for science. Not gonna look for it to confirm, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna be confident. It's 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 for a hot second anyway, and I didn't really see it in the credits, but I'm also I'm also the kind of motherfucker that can name the song in, in one beat. You know, I can name that tune in one beat. Especially if it's something that I'd heard as often as the Game Over music in Super Mario World. But that's a type of density, of, of joke, of gag, of reference that I speak of. I've seen the movie definitely more than 10 times, but, you know, probably less than 100. And, uh, yeah, more than 10, less than 100. And I still find new things. Like how the titles of the sections are different the second time that Knives goes to the record store with Scott or you know or, or maybe I'm making that one up maybe it's just the angle I don't know watch the movie let me know on Twitter at cool mark D cool the C and mark with a K the visual effects are great and there is a legit metric ass ton of it there is a lot of compositing a lot of environmental stuff and obviously a lot of things in the fight scenes, although in those, many things that you would think computer-generated were practical effects. They did a lot of editing of backgrounds and locations, and again, to bring up Mindhunter, if you ever see the VFX reel for that show, links in the show notes. 
so if you see the VFX reel for the show, you'll see that they, they add trees to a house to make it look a certain way or, or remove trees or, or change trees. Legitimate VFX work, but not the flashy type that one would think of immediately when they think visual effects. Not explosions or anything. Really just creating the frame that the director had in mind. In this movie, they did a lot with snow, fake snow at that, and uh, a lot of the VFX was used to make it look flat and level like it did in the books. They would remove trees or make trees simpler, clean up and simplify houses or, or, or buildings. They used O'Malley's photo references from when he drew the books and and in that, Wright wanted to simplify it as as someone would remember it, I believe he said. There's an entire memory thing that was in the books and it didn't come in the, come up in the movie much at all, except for mostly with the I don't drink thing Scott always pulls. No, I don't drink. This is just Coke Zero. And it's quickly proven to be bullshit. What do you mean you don't drink? I distinctly remember you being very drunk on a couple of G&T. And is maybe representative of Scott disassociating and distancing himself from his past and the difficult relationships he's had in a way that makes him no longer responsible. What about you and Kim? And Scott Kim? Memory I can barely too. remember. It was high school. She had freckles. That's it? Yeah, it kind of ended. It changed. This looks a lot like memory suppression and could even be more like gestalt distortion where Scott fills in the gaps with false memories, like when referring to Kim. By the time you dumped Kim. Okay, me and Kim are all good now, all right? I'm not a doctor, and I'm definitely not a psychologist, but I am a psych minor. Please see Psych Major by Lex the Lexicon Artist. Links in the show notes. This is explored in much greater depth in the books, which is why it's now, upon reading them again after so many years, so obvious to me. Uh, none of that is the point, though. The point is that the army of stunt and effects coordinators deserve all the credit in the world. I would say that this movie, if you enjoy it, for those who are still listening and haven't seen it, or if you previously enjoyed it, for those who did see it, it's a three-watch minimum. Three-watch minimum. Watch one is just to see it. To experience the story in the world. Watch 2 is really to see the performances, the nuance of the actors and the blocking. Why did this character do that? What is young Neil doing in this scene? Who is Como talking to? And the third watch is really for the details. There's so many details, you won't stop at three watches if you get this far, I promise. I want to talk a little bit about Watch 2 right now. I'd like to talk about the cast and the characters just a little bit, but not the ones you think. The cast. I'm going to just briefly talk about four actors and four roles in this movie that just really wowed me. No, it won't be Captain America or Superman or the Atom. These parts aren't that big. There's um, there's a movie podcast on the Ringer Network 
a primarily sports website that has uh, subsequently diversified called The Rewatchables. And it's basically sports radio, but for movies. And you know what? I can dig that. Having come from watching a whole hell of a lot of sports, sports programming, and listening to sports radio. Yeah, I could, I could super dig that. It has a vibe. It's super familiar, right? So you should check it out. Links in the show notes. The Rewatchables has awards. And one of the ones that I find the most amusing is the Dion Waiters Award. The Dion Waiters Award is for the actor coming in and, and doing the most with the least, so to speak. Modeled after Dion Waiters, who is an NBA player with a habit of coming off the bench out of nowhere and just having a huge game with like no minutes and just, and it's a thing, just Dion Waiters. That being said, I, I looked into him a little more and to try to explain this phenomenon better, but this past season, he was suspended a few times by the heat. And one of those times was for having a panic attack on a plane caused by eating too many weed gummies. And uh, another was for calling in sick and then posting a picture of himself on a boat that very same day. So maybe not a great guy to have an award be named after, but whatever, neither here nor there. The first candidate for Dion Waiters is Aubrey Plaza in the role of Julie. You know what, maybe it's high time you took a look in the mirror before you wreak havoc on another girl. Julie starts out as an info dump and goes on to be two of the best gags in the movie. The intensity that Plaza brings to the role is way high for the movie, but it just works. In the books, she's just bitchy, but in the movie, Plaza shows that she hates with the fires of hell. Her performance is great, and, and it should be noted. The second candidate for Dion Waiters is Johnny Simmons in the role of young Neil. What do you play? Wow, um, Zelda, Tetris, that's kind of a big question. Yes, young Neil is the younger, just whatever blah guy that is always in the background, but in scrutinizing his performance, you'll see that his part is both more elaborate and executed with more skill than first viewing would ever likely indicate. Your brain may shorthand logic and relegate young Neil to side character unimportant status, but he's, he's one to watch. The third candidate is Franklin Nelson as Como. Sorry, that's Nelson Franklin, not Franklin Nelson from Daredevil. You know, so I told him, you've got a really good sound, and I think that you should market your sound to deaf people. Because, <laughs> because Scott, hey. The part is minuscule, yet Nelson brings this easiness into it. He really embodies Como in a real way. Como is probably my favorite character in the whole thing. A little trivia put in the extras of the first book, O'Malley writes a quick bio on Como that says, and I'll, I'll quote, Como is based on a Como in real life. It's complicated. Close quote. And that's it. That's, that's the end of it. In book three, maybe, Como has a a ring that has a skull in it that whispers, and he said he got it from the future. And I don't know if that's a Mystery Men reference, or a The Phantom reference, or both. Fucking possibly. 
the Scott Pilgrim world is, is dense as hell with, with references, and you know, for every one I get, there's there's two I don't. I'm gonna call out an honorable mention here. Uh, honorable mention goes to Anna Kendrick, who did all of her sides of the phone calls with somebody else reading those lines. And she had to kind of fit the, the spacing, and in that, she was stellar. <clears throat> Please excuse my brother, he is chronically enfeebled. I'm Stacy. Genuinely. If you haven't seen Up in the Air, go see Up in the Air. She, she is like the pie. So good. The fourth candidate, and yes, this would be the extremely dark horse if you had seen the movie, but didn't pay attention to me rattling off actor names before, uh, is someone whose part is so small as to be invisible. Literally. Solo round. <laughs> You probably forgot that they opened up this podcast, didn't you? Literally invisible and figuratively invisible. You never see this person on screen, but their talents shine. In my first viewing of the movie, I had wondered who they got for this part, and I think that at the time, he was still not credited. But that man is Bill Hader and he provides the voice talent for the movie, including the narrator, the kind of in-fiction announcer voice, as well as the announcer voice for Ninja Ninja Revolution. He just does such a fucking awesome job. How is someone so talented? Have you seen Barry? I've only seen season one, but it is, it is amazing. Bill Hader wins Dion Waiters for me, but... To be completely candid, I have no fucking clue as to what the rules are for Dion Waiters, and I should probably listen to more rewatchables. Maybe they have a wiki, and it would make sense if they did. I'm not going to go into the rest of the cast, but suffice it to say, I think that they're all great. And some of, the, some of them are, you know, Academy Award winners and nominees, or, you know, whatever. No big deal. But they're all winners in my heart. They need no introduction. The villains have a particularly easy time just being evil and chewing up the scenery, and I, I fucking love it. You mean you don't know about the League? Etc. There's no podcast that could potentially cover the third-plus viewings because it's, it is a lot, and, well, honestly, it, it just it wouldn't be any fun. Like, you just you have to do it because you want to on your own. The record store in Toronto that is featured in Scott Pilgrim vs. the World is called Sonic Boom. And probably this would have been more appropriate when I talked about the music, but the longer I took to finish the podcast, the more I tacked on. So if this feels tacked on, well, it is. Good eye. Good eye. But for now, this is about sound design and dialogue. There are innumerable sound gags in this movie. There's one very clear one that I can point out off the bat, so maybe I can read you into this if you haven't noticed already. When we first get to Wallace's apartment, the screen scans the room and we get pop-ups identifying the ownership of all the things in the apartment. And as you will hear, it literally scans the room.
What you just heard is extremely like all of the flatbed scanners I had heard in my youth, coupled with the Macintosh alert sounds, which in the life of a comics artist would probably be very normal sounds. The literal use of the word scan, which would appear in camera direction, if any camera direction at all appears, in a script or more likely in a storyboard, and coupling that with the progress of actually drawing a comic and then digitizing it for publication is this whole next level 5D laser reference that I'm into and, and I've been talking about. This is it. Like, this is the shit. The stupid fucking scan gag. Let's take a look at three examples of including sound gags or sound references throughout the movie. We need stalkers. When Steven still says, we need stalkers, it hits what I believe to be the Legend of Zelda get key sound. And I believe it to be from A Link to the Past specifically, although they are all kind of pretty similar. Then there's some visual stuff going on, and when Knives gains some knowledge in that scene, we hear the Legend of Zelda item fanfare that everyone knows and loves. And these sounds are iconic and are pretty much in every Legend of Zelda game, so that's a that's a 30-whatever-year legacy. I'm not afraid to not look stuff up. I'm a podcaster, but the vibe that I get is that young Neil is playing Legend of Zelda on his DS in, in scene. So these are the sounds from his game. You and her? In this one, there's a visual gag that represents Scott's brain going from not getting it to getting it. And it's accompanied with a sonic ring get sound. Now, it's not a, it's not a full Nintendo show, but it's pretty stacked on that end. Uh, hilariously enough, there are a bunch of gas stations in my area that all have a sound on their register that sounds exactly like the sonic ring sound to me and it's very jarring i'm 22 22. when scott repeats that he's 22 the legend of zelda flute sound or short version of it maybe from a link to the past place i think the flute shows up in a couple of games but it would seem that after a link to the past they it came back as an ocarina or you know the ocarina with the definite article as it factors heavily into the ocarina of time because there's a whole ocarina of time mechanic with c buttons wherein the player plays various songs on the ocarina of time but those are just an extremely small subset of the types of shenanigans that this movie gets into just in the audio space alone there are also plenty of dialogue gags that match with the visuals. There's a few types of dialogue gag that I dug up, like the action interruption. Hey, what's up with his outfit? Yeah, is he a pirate? Are you a pirate? Pirates are in this year? The match cut interruption word substitution. I don't know what to call this, but I fucking love it. I don't think anything can get in the way of how I shit. The walk-off throwaway line on the heels of a just fucking great line. Maybe next time we don't date the girl with 11 evil ex-boyfriends. 
Seven. Oh, that's not that bad. Hey. Yeah, I know. Oh, it's so pathetic. The quick His Girl Friday banter. Hey, lovebirds. We have unfinished business, I and he. He and me. Don't you talk to me about grammar. The this has actually happened to Edgar Wright in real life. Hi, big fan. Why wouldn't you be? The callback you didn't see coming, but should have actually been a double gag except the sensors got boosted. For the record, I am so pissed off for you right now. Shut the f*** up, Julie. These are also an extremely small subset of conversation gags in the movie. There is also a slew of hotlines and spit takes, but for most quotable, I will say that it pertains to Brett. Yes, Brett. No, I won't include it. If you've seen the movie, you know. If you know, you know. And if you don't, well, you should fix that. Again, the movie's on American Netflix. Bacardi and Cola. Do it. The wrap-up. This is such a fascinating movie to me, and I may have just gone on too long. It's almost a movie that knows it's a movie that knows it's a comic that is a story. It's got layers. But, you know, to, to, to poke around the story a little more... To really kind of get the shape of it, there are there are definitely aspects of it that were hurt by the the compression into screenplay. We we don't really get into Ramona's head much at all in the movie. Kim is just deadpan comic relief for a good part of the movie, and Knives is a lovesick teenager. I put more behind those characters in my head than the movie did, and. I would need to assume that I'm not the only one because critics and audience really kind of seem to agree on the movies 82%, 84% tomato meter respectively. Looking at the text of the movie, it seems ripe for that type of criticism, but it is, it is definitely charmed the heart of its audience. That's unusual as hell to me. Especially for a movie that, that couldn't make its 50 to 60 million back in domestic box. You know, I know it was it was billed as a video game movie, but that's, you know, for people that call everything a Nintendo. It's not quite that. I think it's closer to Nick and Nora's infinite playlist in a lot of ways. I like that movie a lot too. I have uh, a Where's Fluffy sticker on my laptop right now. You know, it's funny how things work out. Check out, uh, check out Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. If I find it that it's streaming somewhere, I will drop a link in the show notes. I do have questions, though. Where in the spectrum of reality to surreality does this movie lie? Steven Stills never really talks about how he's named after the musician Steven Stills or has the same name. Does that imply that in the, the Pilgrim verse, there is no Steven Stills? What does that mean for history? The bands we see are fake. The non-original music we hear in the movie is the music that we hear in the movie. But the characters don't necessarily hear it. Same for the book. Did Scott really fight those guys? Stacy saw them. Envy was very upset that her boyfriend got headbutted so hard that he burst. But maybe everybody going this hard in the paint is really just reading too much into it. The first book of the series is called Scott Pilgrim's Precious Little Life. And at least when I read it, 
I hear it in a viciously sarcastic tone. It seems that maybe this movie got 500 days of summered by some people and that the negative aspects of the characters aren't emphasized enough, but I will admit that the liberties taken with a perceived timeline, perceived in that there's no reference point of month and day, but that the whole movie takes place in, in Toronto's winter, which for, for a swampy boy like myself, um, it feels like it could be eternal, and, and that can really throw a wrench in the works. I, for one, needed the extra weight that the books brought, but to be fair, I'm, I'm also very dumb. I'm here picking apart the fabric of the reality of the movie and, and by extension the book when the reality is that I think that the world which is presented is absolutely perfect as is. I'm in on the joke, however many layers it may have, and I love every minute of it. I will leave you all with this, however. I was a lot like the characters in this movie. I was looking for cool new music, I was going to concerts, I was very likely a total and complete jerk of a romantic partner of any kind, and really trying to find my place in the world. And that was pretty recent for me when, when the movie came out. There's a phenomenon that I'm still trying to explore, but that seems common among the, the parents that I know, and it's that their parents forgot what it was like to have young children. It's probably a factor of trauma and recency. Humans are more readily and more accurately able to recall things that are are recent to them, and they will observe these things better as well. They perceive them to be higher in frequency. Humans will forget difficult or painful things. For people, especially critics, who can't recall a time like this in their life, or maybe who never had it, well, this movie may not land at all. It may be an entire movie about cognitive distortion and O'Malley, far from being a musician or a writing and drawing comics, is low-key a high-tier psychologist, or maybe not. Regardless, the movie the movie landed on me like a ton of bricks. And the more I watch it, the more I love it. Plugs? No plugs. If you don't see images in your podcast app, check out the link for... Mark's movie collection on scumbags.com, again, S-C-U-M-M-B-A-G-S, where you can see the show notes in the episode in their totality. There are also some other older pilot podcasts that I just never got around to making. I like this one a lot. I get to, I get to talk about the movies I like for a while. I was going through my HD DVDs and I talked about a few movies I didn't like, and it wasn't that fun. But eventually I'll need to move on to movies that I haven't seen before, or or movies that I didn't like. Maybe next episode will be one of those. Beyond, The Black Rainbow was a fun curveball. I hadn't seen that movie before a bunch of times. It wasn't a deep dive, but the feeling behind it was genuine. And I could dig that. You know, we'll see what comes up next. Tweet at me, again, cool Mark D., Cool with a C and Mark with a K. As always, 
Be nice. Stay safe. Wear a mask. Black Lives Matter. Oh, and you thought it was over? Nah, there's, there's some quick addendums here. After recording, I was watching the extra features and I wanted to bring it up and stick it in, so to speak. Yes, I'm 12. But I did see on the video blog some behind the scenes of the party scene. They had rails set up across the ceiling to place lights. That's actually genius and I'm genuinely considering doing that in my office now. It's brilliant and clearly I don't work in the pictures. They, uh, they did have some string lights up in one part that probably would have revealed the ceiling rails but I don't think that those were necessarily in picture. They may have just been fill but the ceiling wasn't quite as dark as I thought that they would have made it and and I'm just thinking then that with the fact that they're shooting film in a professional fashion that one it probably needed a lot of deliberate lighting to be properly exposed so anything that wasn't fuck you lit was falling towards black and two they do have colorist and effects and could have just pulled the scene down a little bit if they felt like it additionally i found the most wonderful quote from Brian Lee O'Malley that I shall play for you presently, which sums up and validates all of my feelings, and, and it makes me feel like the time and the effort of this whole endeavor was worthwhile if only to prove that I can think, even remotely, along the lines of Brian Lee O'Malley and or Edgar Wright. I think for some fans it's hard to understand that a film has different needs than a six-book series of graphic novels. You know, there's different structure and different timeline, different pacing. I think all the changes are made, like, definitely in the spirit of the books. Um, and I think true fans will understand that. But seriously, there is legitimate hours of extra content on this Blu-ray. Every Blu-ray is about the same price, and I feel like I've received... More than double the return on this one. I wish there was content like this for so many movies, and I can't help but think that it might be Edgar Wright's enthusiasm for movies in general that propels this forward. I think I have hot fuzz on DVD, and if I don't, or if I do, actually, that will only motivate me to pick up the Three Flavors Cornetto pack of Blu-rays and check out the features on them. Oh, and you also get uh, full-length versions of the in-movie songs performed by the actors in essentially music videos on this Blu-ray. So yes, a full version of the Brie Larson Black Sheep, which for some reason I just super duper love. And now it's time to talk beat-em-ups. If you were eagle-eared, you might have spied a pizza time earlier in the episode, and those in the know know that this is clearly Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 4, Turtles in Time, for the SNES. This might be my Apex Mountain for beat-em-ups. And no, I didn't make up Apex Mountain, and it seems very clumsy because an apex is a peak, so every mountain is an Apex Mountain, but maybe the definite article of THE Apex Mountain makes it different, or maybe it's the Mountain of Mountains. It's another rewatchable reference, 
but I did play the hell out of this game. It's story time, so I'll call this Mark Who's Talking. I love Ninja Turtles, but I also loved Ninja Turtles. It's not, it's not new, it's very established and entrenched. The cartoon was great, the movie was better, and then the second movie was even better. The third one was cool, not gonna lie. And it really had that comic book vibe, but it didn't have, you know, Shredder or Vanilla Ice, if memory serves. I do have the VHS in my parents' house, and that's a whole, a whole nother thing that maybe I'll get around to at some point. But I worshipped at the altar of Ninja Turtle, and I still have one Ninja Turtle plush to this day that I got when I was maybe six years old. My kid doesn't give a shit. Ninja Turtles are a little more violent than I would like for him to watch, and, you know, sure, maybe I came out fine. But maybe I didn't, and it took me a long time to seem okay. But it's not robot trains. I'm going to derail a derail. Disraeli gears at this point. Like the Cream album. Yes, there are derailer gears. Yes, I have friends who went through hardcore bicycle phases, and that's how I learned that word. I don't really give a shit about bikes. The last time I was on one, I hurt myself so bad that I didn't walk unaided for maybe six months. Anyway, anyway, I want to get into this kids' TV programming and specifically robot trains. Kids' TV programming, it's not great. Let's be real. But there's stuff that has morals and messages. There's, there's things that'll teach counting and basic mathematical concepts. But then there's robot trains. In robot trains, as far as I can tell, they are anthropomorphic train engines that are trains that can transform to bipedal robots similar to transformers, but then they use being bipedal to punch the ever-loving shit out of each other. Similar to transformers. My kid loves trains, loves trucks, loves cars, the whole night. We've watched Little Bus Tayo, Blazing the Monster Machines, and all that. Recently, it's been a lot of Paw Patrol, which I'm not into, but, you know, for a whole while, he really wanted robot trains. I sat down to watch it one time, and in my hazy and, and righteously upset parent brain memory, right, it was, uh, it was like they went to space, and then the main character, the red train, punched the, the fuck out of a black train, and it ends in a combination of Mortal Kombat, like, standard uppercut or crouching uppercut and a street fighter dragon punch. It's like somewhere in the middle there, maybe like a, um, a light dragon punch, you know, but the show is kind of downright fierce and yeah, no more robot trains, but Ninja Turtles, Ninja Turtles was rad as hell. And the show was very toned down. If you think about it, the foot soldiers were robots and the whole thing, but the arcade machines were tough. They were meant to milk you for quarters, and I wasn't, and I'm not great at games, so I was, I was definitely getting milked. I have nipples, Fogger, but uh, I got a Super Nintendo one year, and you better believe I was asking for the Ninja Turtles game. This game has four turtles with different stats. It uses a lot of parallax, and it has just super solid gameplay mechanics, cool art, really bad voice digitization. Right. And banging music. In the playlist for this movie, you will find a cover 
for one of the songs, Sewer Surfing, and it slaps. I don't actually have a name in my head for the style of music that the game is really set in. It's it's not a Eurobeat, it's like a version of Eurobeat, but what if it was like based off jazz maybe? Uh, but like Swing or, or Bossa Nova, possibly specifically, because, you know, it, it really is a bop. It's got a great beat and you can really dance to it. Well, I still have that very same Super Nintendo. It's half yellow and half regular gray, but it's still mine. My kid took it out of the entertainment system the other day, and uh, who knows what he did to it, but I'm very confident that it still works. They don't make them like they used to, and uh, that's what my life is like. It, it, one of my most prized possessions because it represented the joy of being a child. And in a very material way, the sacrifices of my parents. And that means a lot. Games were super expensive back then. I let a distant cousin borrow my games. Kind of like, that's what my memory is. Like, you're going to let them borrow it. According to my parents, there's a lot more nuance there that I won't go into, but I only kept NBA Jam Tournament Edition because I was almost 100% with the game and I was at the point where I was playing against the developers and it was like punishing, but I thought I, I would persevere. Turtles in Time was one of those games that I let, lent out. I didn't know that I was never going to see the games again, but I do believe that they brought him as much joy and meaning as they brought me. And several years ago, just as the retro game phenomenon was kicking off, I bought Turtles in Time again. I paid 20 bucks for it, and I thought that that was pretty steep. But based on the prices the last time I checked, I did okay. I've since played it, and I've also played the truncated PS3 remaster, right? When I still have a working PS3, anyway. And it still holds up. This game holds a weird niche in my heart that is also occupied by Maximum Carnage and Final Fight. And I don't know why. Maybe because going to Blockbuster Video and renting them, or maybe because they just had that special sauce. I also gave away my Maximum Carnage, but I bought it again for Genesis, oddly enough. And that's definitely a story for a different podcast. But that's it. I'm done. Well, I'm not done, but I'm calling it. I could, I could talk forever on just one incredibly long unbroken. Uh, anyway, I'm done. I'll I'll play you out with some music from my friend Josh Rivera. He's on Spotify as Transit FM, and yes, there will be links in the show notes. I think that I may need to spend an hour or so on these show notes. I I really didn't do a great job of keeping up with all the links that I needed to put in there. Normally I do, but not this time. So, fuck me, I guess. Uh, stay safe, be nice, Black Lives Matter. Adios.